0: Football is back and so is The Ringer NFL Show. Coming at you five days a week with wall-to-wall coverage from recapping the Sunday games, giving a player perspective, deep dives, and previewing the coming slate. Check out The Ringer NFL Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. What if I told you you could get a big snack almost anywhere for less than five bucks? Let's talk 7-Eleven's $3 big meal deal with seven rewards. Big meal deal is a big bite hot dog a large, big gulp drink, and you won't find a better snack deal anywhere else. Here's what I put on my hot dog mustard. And that's it. That's it. I love a hot dog with mustard. Maybe if the chili, if I'm feeling it, if I'm feeling crazy, maybe a little chili, maybe a little nacho cheese, but I'm a hot dog and mustard guy. But if that sounds like your kind of bite, visit 7 Eleven, valid through 1725. 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early. Plus tax applicable on large, big gulp only. Participating U.S. stores only. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me today, as always, is the dinger mashing man himself, Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. So uh, a bit of a a surprising outcome last night. Not that it's surprising that the Dodgers would win a game, but who knew that Chris Taylor was going to find the power of, I would say, such legendary power hitters as Babe Ruth, Albert Pujols, George Brett, and Adam Kennedy.
0: Adam Kennedy, exactly. See, I thought the surprise you were going to say is that the Dodgers actually scored more than two runs, which they have been unable to do for large parts of the NLCS. But it turns out all you need to do is just put all of your best hitters at the bottom of the order, and then they'll hit five home runs.
2: That seems to be it. So we're going to... Is there anything to say about Chris Taylor? I mean, it's so seven self. Oh, boy. Not a lot of sleep this week. Uh, It's so self evidently great. I'm almost not sure what to uh, what to say apart from
0: well done. (laughs) I actually the bottom of the order thing is a joke, but I do have a question, which is if you are the Dodgers manager. Do you leave Chris Taylor at the bottom of the order? Do you leave AJ Pollock at the bottom of the order and Cody Bellinger at the bottom of the order? Or do you move him up for someone like Trey Turner, who hasn't hit well this postseason at all? How much do you believe in math versus gut feeling? Because maybe they're only performing well because they're hitting where they are. You don't want to mess with what's working.
2: We can give Dave Roberts a hard time for a lot of reasons this postseason, but I don't envy him his lineup construction problems. Cause his best hitters have been inconsistent. And I mean, so of his, his bottom of the order hitters. There are times when it seemed like Cody Bellinger, who you'd ordinarily have hitting somewhere between second and fourth in this lineup. You know, if he hadn't hit one sixty five during the regular season had been the most clutch, most productive player in the lineup. Albert Pujols had two hits last night, two hits and a walk, no less. So it's, it's a tough thing to, to consider. I think, The optimistic way to look at it is you've got eight guys in that lineup who could produce. uh, So I guess just try to mix lefty righty and hope for the best. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's (laughs) funny because I don't know, but that's why I asked the question in the playoffs. We react, I think, so quickly on the pitching side. If a reliever has one or two bad games, they're basically removed from all high leverage opportunities for The rest of the postseason, we saw that, I don't know, Ken Giles comes to mind in 2017. Craig Kimbrell in 2018 wasn't the one closing out the World Series for Alex Cora. But in the lineup, you have someone like Trey Turner who hasn't hit all playoffs, and he's still hitting second. And he was good last night with a couple singles through the shift. But I feel like there's more of a quick reaction among pitchers than hitters, and I'm not sure if there's a basis for that, but at the same time, Trey Turner's been a good hitter for 162 games, so do you overreact to the nine games where he hasn't hit? This is why I think lineup construction in general is probably overrated between the optimal lineup and the not optimal lineup as we saw last night. Like, Mm -hmm. if the guys are going to hit, they're going to hit anyway, but I do think we treat offense differently than pitching in the postseason when it comes to small samples.
2: Well, I think there's a reason for that, and there's... it boils down to this is why like personally i don't think this is noticeable but if you go back and look look at the features i've written over by however many years i've I've worked at the ringer it's probably two or three to one features about pitchers versus position players it's because it's so much easier to 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 figure out what pitchers are controlling Mm -hmm. and so like just personally i feel like i have a much better understanding of of the art of pitching than uh than hitting and that's I don't know that that's you know unusual. So, with that in mind, because the pitcher is controlling, even in a small sample size, first of all, the sample size for a reliever versus a position player is about the same. Like it, it, they're facing four or five batters per uh, per game. A, a position player is taking four or five plate appearances, but you can see if the pitcher's struggling to command, if he's if he's having a velocity drop, if there's something wrong with his breaking ball, if he's not locating, if it's not spinning, if it's not breaking if you know if if hitters are, are getting a better read on it than usual so it's a lot easier to pick up those variations in performance that exist that are undetectable by the sort of large end statistical analysis that That you and i tend to lean on um so it makes more sense to go with your gut with reliever usage at least in my mind um and it's eminently possible i've been wrong we're going to talk we're going to talk about a lot of things that we've been wrong about uh in this postseason but i would go with my gut more with a reliever than with a position player with but with that said like if you think you see something if there's something about trey turner something specific mechanically or approach wise or mentally that you think you can identify then by all means, like there's no tomorrow. You can't go waiting around for uh, for the computers to to confirm your your hypothesis at this point.
0: I'm sorting uh, on Baseball Reference the Dodgers hitters in this series by championship win probability. Added number one, of course, is Chris Taylor. Number two is Cody Bellinger, who had the big home run in Game Three. Number three on the list. Tony Gonsolin because he went one for one in one plate appearance, so maybe Tony Gonsolin should be hitting fifth in this lineup.
2: I think Tony Gonsolin's been kind of underused throughout this uh, this series. Though the other thing I'll, I'll say is just the example we've been using is instructive because, in at this point, you care more about outcomes than process, right? Like it's there's no time for the bounces to even out. So if you think that, so if a hitter's not performing, you're thinking about moving him up or down the lineup. Trey Turner went three for four last night. Like talk all you want about the quality of, of the hits he got. Like it, it was better that he was in the two That's spot or, or think about, think about uh, Freddie Freeman who went, uh, what was it? Oh, for eight with seven strikeouts in the first few games of the, the series they haven't been able to get him out uh, ever since then. So this, these things can turn in the blink of an eye uh, with no warning whatsoever for no good reason. Uh, we've seen this with Belger. We've seen this with AJ Pollock so i guess all things being equal i'd leave well enough alone unless there was some good reason to move a, a hitter up and down the the lineup in the from the process side but that puts me in in the same boat as as dave roberts so you know he's had an up and down postseason
0: want to go to the al yeah Where let's go to the AL. tonight yeah uh
2: so when we were doing our our brief planning uh bobby suggested we start with the nlcs because it's still going on uh as opposed to the alcs is this an accurate read on this series to you is this series just about over wait first let me defend myself
3: guys it's (laughs) 7 30 a.m for me and like michael i have not had very much sleep so i'm operating on three hours behind that um red sox fans i know that technically you still have a chance
0: you're just a man of the moment, a prisoner of the moment. You saw there was no game last night and assumed the series was Don't over. Don't move Trey Turner down, bench him. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh I do not think this series is over. I think, first of all, I love game sixes. A lot of the best games in playoff history came in game six. And I think the best scenario for a game six is when the team that is trailing three to two has the advantage in both pitching matchups. And 100%. we get both of that in. in LA versus Atlanta, the Dodgers have Bueller and Scherzer going, Uh, Scherzer in game six, Bueller in game seven, and Atlanta has Anderson Morton, who we'll talk about in a bit. That's pretty close. I have no idea what the Astros are going to do with their staff. They have Luis Garcia up against Ivaldi in Game 6. Ivaldi certainly has the advantage. And they have Jose Arquidi presumably against uh, Eduardo Rodriguez in Game 7 if it goes that far. And I think you can just look at what happened in Game 3 to see that Rodriguez has the advantage. So Houston, of course, is favored. They have a better team. They're at home. They're up in the series. But it's not that hard to imagine a scenario in which Ivaldi outduels Luis Garcia who lasted basically an inning last time he, he went out before getting hurt. And we don't know the state of his knee right now. So I do not think Boston is out of this by any means.
2: Yeah. And he didn't pitch well in the first round either. Uh, So it's, I mean, the joke that I've been sitting on for five days is Houston hasn't had rotation problems this bad since Neil Armstrong almost died on Gemini eight. But that's for for you. You've been saving that
0: up since Friday?
2: Yeah, it's it's. It's been percolating for a while, um, and I'm glad I got to use it now. But yeah, Garcia wasn't good, whether he's hurt or not. hasn't been good in either of his postseason starts. It's it's three and two-thirds total innings, 10 earned runs. There's a a growing conspiracy theory uh, in corners of the Red Sox-based internet, which I've been unfortunate enough to see that Garcia was not actually hurt when he got pulled from from game two and the the Astros just pretended he was so they could have four hours to to warm up Jake to Um so I don't know if that's got any merit, but I don't expect a ton at this point from Garcia. yavaldi has been I mean he's been that sort of durable workhorse ace like ace adjacent quality that we've you know that so few other teams in this postseason have gotten. Even the, even the, the beating he took in um, uh, game four, it's, uh, I, that was less of a beating he took and more of a beating that Martin Perez took uh, while borrowing outs from him. But it's, uh, yeah, I think a definite advantage for, for Boston in game six. And then the way Erod pitched, you have to be optimistic about them for game seven. The problem is they have to win twice on the road. So that's always difficult to do.
0: Yeah, I think Valdez in game five saved Houston both in terms of giving them the lead coming back home and also because he reset the bullpen by pitching eight innings. I'm impressed with what Dusty Baker has done this series, honestly, because it's not like he went into the series expecting to only use his starters an inning or two per game. It's just they were getting shelled. And even in game four, when Zach Granke pitched, he, I think, had zero swings and misses when he was removed. So yeah, he wasn't getting like lit up like Luis Garcia or, or Akiti was, but he had given up two runs on a monsters Xander Bogart's homer. He had walked three. He hadn't struck anyone out. So I think it was smart to remove him that early and then rely on Christian Javier and Brooks Raley and kind of the underbelly of the bullpen to get through the middle innings and give Houston a chance to come back with its offense at the end of the game. I've been impressed with how Baker has handled his bullpen and he'll probably need to work some magic again in game six and seven because it's hard to see either of these pitchers Doing what Valdez did in game five.
2: And that's where we're seeing this both of these series really being decided is not the starters and not the the back-end relief ace type guys. It's if the starter gets knocked out early, what does Christian Javier do? What, you know, how what can he provide? What can Tanner Houck provide out of the bullpen? Um, although I guess he's a, a slightly different profile of pitcher. Drew Smiley, for instance, his his performance in um in game four of the NLCS might end up swinging that series. So it's uh, it's all about the, the afterthoughts. The guys who, you know, the 13th man on the pitching staff, if he can get you six outs in the right time, that can change the entire direction of a series.
0: And both of these offenses in the ALCS have hit pretty well. There have been some underperforming bats. Michael Brantley uh, on the Astros side, you know, he I don't think has any extra base hits. Kyle Schwarber hasn't hit that well besides his grand slam on the Red Sox side, but you've had most of the top guys hitting well. Altuve and Bregman with home runs. Kike Hernandez has stayed hot. Rafael Devers has stayed hot. So I think the ALCS was the series I expected to be full of offense. And for the most part, we've gotten that. Maybe not to the extent of like the Red Sox getting 14 runs like they did against Tampa, but they've hit very well. So I think we could be in for a lot more runs in the last two games. And I'm curious to see, you mentioned the pitchers who have performed on like the Astros side and Atlanta side, but on Boston side, it's still Garrett Whitlock who did allow the game tying home run uh, in game four. And then Tanner Houck, I'm surprised is not pitched since game one. He's been one of Alex Gore's most reliable arms and he's just gone away from him. I'm not sure if he saw something in that one outing that he didn't like how did allow a home run in that game. But other than that, I'm not still like, Three rounds later, not sure which Boston relievers I trust. I, I think Alex Kord doesn't know that either. That's why he's gone to Eovaldi, uh out of the bullpen, right? Because he doesn't know who he trusts outside Whitlock either. So I think the fact that we're still uncertain of the answer to that question is why Boston is in some trouble if Eovaldi doesn't give them seven innings, you know?
2: Yeah, that's well, that's the the point I was going to raise with Tanner Houck. And I want to come back to bringing in Evaldi in relief because that's a really fascinating tactical decision for me that, that I, I want to discuss in, in greater depth. But the thing with Halk is he's the guy you bring in to get depth. I mean, he saved their bacon when when sale got knocked out uh, in his uh, divisional series start. And I think he's my suspicion is he's just been left in reserve in case Pavetta gets knocked out early, in case sale gets knocked out early, in case they need somebody to fill in the Drew Smiley role. They've been holding back a, a good pitcher uh, for just that occasion, so I I still think that, he, that's it's true. In play on, if
0: on the one hand, that's true. On the one hand, he did also throw just one inning in the wild card game, which was I don't know, maybe that was just a winner go home. So if you don't use him, you lose him. But at this point, Boston isn't that scenario, right? They have to win every remaining game, so maybe they will go to him for just an inning or two if they need.
2: Yeah, I I think at this point it it is exactly like you said that we're going to see everything. There's no saving whatever you know that's why you know what i wrote about uh the dodgers pitcher usage you know i disagreed with the decision to bring max scherzer in to close the decisive game of the division series but i understand it but because of the downstream effects but i understand it because if you give up a run that inning there are no downstream effects so you can figure that out later i think that's defensible um but in a similar vein I think the one of the big turning points of the series, and what will probably go down as the turning point of the series, uh, if the Astros hang on to win it, is the ninth inning of Game Four, where it comes in two two Whitlock uh, has already surrendered the game tying home run. He's already thrown two innings and twenty six pitches, and Nathan Ivaldi, the scheduled Game Six starter, comes in out of the bullpen um, and ultimately gives up the winning run, and then Martin Perez turns it into a laugher. Um, I've been pretty hard on on managers overusing their scheduled starters, weakening the uh, the weakening their rotations later in the series when it's not a winner go home situation. I think the the biggest example of this is Dave Roberts using Julio Arias in uh, in Game Two, where he might not have even been the best pitcher for that situation. But I really supported going with Ivaldi here because this was a This was like the championship high leverage moment, and you want your best pitcher on the mound, even if it didn't ultimately work out. And I'm curious what your read on the situation is, if you're even judging it by by those same criteria.
0: Well, I think it's interesting because over the last half decade, I would say going back 2017 was the first time we really saw the Astros do this. 2018, we saw the Red Sox do this. Is and then 2019 with the Nationals is bringing guys in on their throw days. You know, two days. After they've started two days before they're scheduled to start again. This is maybe I'm misremembering. This is the first postseason where we've seen, I think, concrete effects of that on their next start. Like in 2019, I don't remember Patrick Corbin being affected because he threw in relief a couple days earlier. In 2017, the Astros were basically just switching McCullers and Morton around between the rotation and the bullpen but here we have Max Scherzer coming out of game two of the NLCS because he said yeah I basically have a dead arm and he couldn't even last five innings so I'm not sure if this was happening before and we just weren't aware of it but that does raise the risk of of it backfiring as it did in both of these series but I am much more supportive of the Evaldi decision as you are I think for two main reasons number one they had already used Whitlock they had already used Adovino I'm not sure what other reliever I trust in that situation, and that's Huck a tie game of guy. a ninth inning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How is the other person that they theoretically could have used. But if Boston wins that game, then they are up 3-1. to one. And LA-Atlanta <laughs> at LA, last year aside, it is really, really hard to come back from a 3-1 deficit, I think especially given the Astros pitching situation. So I don't mind Cora going for... The, the jugular in that situation, especially when it's a tie game, maybe Eovaldi can give you two innings and try to give you two times to walk it off in the bottom of the ninth. You knew Houston had Ryan Presley to come in, so I don't think anyone on Boston's staff or bullpen can match Presley inning for inning, so you're hopefully trying to extend that to at least the 10th to at least the 11th. And Eovaldi, I think, gave them the best chance to do that. He also, you know, who who knows what he'll have tonight? He also has done this successfully in the past. He famously threw six innings in that 18-inning World Series game, even though he wasn't on much rest. So I think given his history, given Cora's history, and given the situation, he yeah, had backfired, but I didn't mind the thought.
2: Yeah, you. I think you said it all when you said go for the jugular. There, this reminded me a little bit of... Uh, a similar move in another Boston-Houston playoff series, the 2017 ALDS Game Four in Fenway, when Justin Verlander comes out of the bullpen, uh, and I thought that was absolutely nuts when when AJ Hinch pulled him out of the bullpen, but that ended up determining the series. And I think the key thing, and we're seeing this in this game, we we saw it in uh, in Game Three of the NLCS with Cody Bellinger homering. Um, If you're up against a dangerous team, a team like Houston or a team like LA or even like teams that got eliminated, the the Giants, the Rays, you're up against a high 90s, 100 win team with an offense that goes one through eight and you have the advantage. You have to finish the job. You have to kill them when you have when when it when you have the advantage. And so we we think of a lot of these these moves as using it's substituting more heavily using pitchers uh, outside their accustomed roles as almost like de- defensive moves, desperation moves when your back is up against the wall and, and you have to take risks. But I think there's a lot to be said for taking the, taking that kind of risk to press home the advantage, the going forward on fourth down when you're winning kind of, kind of thing. And I think that it was a, op- you know, like <laughs> obviously it, it didn't work Oh, didn't work. Like almost doesn't uh, encapsulate the, uh, the disaster that that ninth inning was. It was. It was whatever comes beyond didn't work. But I, I really like the aggressiveness and the the proactive, uh, tactical thinking from Alex Cora in that situation.
0: I really like that framing uh, as one of aggression. I also think this is kind of a simplistic test, but it usually works in the playoffs. Is place yourself in the shoes of an Astros fan and. I imagine a Houston fan would have much rather seen Hansel Robles in that situation than Eovaldi. So there's something to be said for wanting to do whatever the other team doesn't want you to do. I also think like we don't have to get into a RoboZone debate because everyone listening probably knows how we both feel about this, but if that strike three to Jason Castro is called, then who knows what happens if Eovaldi escapes that inning without allowing a run, even after allowing a, a Correa leadoff double. I will say... That inning kind of was a microcosm of all of the Red Sox flaws, though, both from not having another reliever to trust to having uh, defense difficulties. I'm not sure if, to to use the obvious example, I'm not sure if Mookie Betts catches that Correa leadoff double that Hunter Renfro couldn't get to, but he probably does, right? And I think the Red, Sox, the Red Sox defense has been one of the worst in the majors all season long, and that hasn't reared its ugly head y- yet in the playoffs, but that point kind of was one we've seen a lot of poor defense in this postseason in this round, especially from a couple key Jose Altuve errors to some weird errors from a lot of different Dodgers. But I think that's that inning. If the Red Sox end up losing the series is going to be the turning point, as you said, Mike, and there are reasons. There are reasons that were appearing all year long that led to that moment for Boston.
2: Were you reading? I, I had forgotten about the the bounce that Correa's double took. Were you rooting for that to bounce off Hunter Renfro and into the bullpen? 1,000%.
0: It, it it came really close came to, to so doing close. it, too, if we had gotten it again. Especially because Correa, I think, uh, on the replay, it looked like he thought Renfro was going to catch it. So if he had been busting out of the box in the beginning and was on his way to third and that and it had gone into the bullpen, ah, that would have been great.
2: Yeeting the ball into the seats is the new market inefficiency. Speaking of market inefficiencies, and you invoked the M-word, mookie bets uh i hear you have strong opinions about uh what the red sox are doing and the uh i don't know the competitive curve that they're on i guess so i far be it for me to to pass up a zach cram rant because they only happen so often so so take it away
0: i i actually i want to begin with a question mike uh bobby you can chime in too do you remember did boston win the world series in 2018 because yeah. I remember being there at Dodger Stadium, the confetti falling, Steve Pierce, that happened, right? I'm not hallucinating that the Red Sox won 108 games in the World Series just a few years ago. Steve Pierce might have been a you know collective national hallucination,
3: but yes, I that's do fair. believe the no, team, that the team, the Boston I mean, Red Sox, did win the World Series.
2: Steve Pierce, the, the originator of the boxy South Carolina first baseman tradition, it's, he, he, made, he made our first baseman thick. And that carried on for Justin Smoke and and LB Dantzler and Christian Walker. So Steve Pierce needs a little bit more respect on this podcast, I think.
0: So the reason I asked this question is because there's been a spate of of stories, a spate of discussion over this Boston playoff run about how now they're on the right track after the lost Dombrowski years that didn't set them up well for the future. And I feel like I'm losing my mind because under Dave Dombrowski they had one of the best seasons in MLB history. They won 108 games. And then in the playoffs, they beat the Yankees, they beat the Astros, and they beat the Dodgers without ever losing more than a game. And that's, again, one of the best seasons in MLB history. And yes, I know a lot of the foundational pieces came from the Ben Charrington era, right? Mookie Betts, Devers, Bogarts, but Dombrowski added for sale, who was very important to that playoff run. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. Okay. (laughs) Dave Dombrowski added... Iavaldi. He added Sale. He added David Price. He added Craig Kimbrell, And he, by being aggressive, what we're talking about with Cora in game, Dombrowski is just an aggressive general manager in a macro sense, and that led, again, I can't repeat this enough, to one of the best seasons in MLB history. And it is being now cast as, oh well, you know, they won a fluky World Series, but didn't set them up well for the future. The whole point of Managing a baseball team is to win a World Series. And Dombrowski did this. He did this in in a flourishing style. And they they fucking throttled two incredible
2: teams in the playoffs. Like that's like it was so dominant the playoffs
0: didn't seem random. And not only that, but People talk all the time about how Dombrowski sacrifices the future for win-now moves. And I grant that Boston's farm system was not in very good shape. But if you look at the actual prospects that Dombrowski traded while he was in charge, he traded Moncada and Michael Kopech, but got Chris Sale back. And Chris Sale was the best pitcher in the American League his first three years in Boston. And then every other prospect they traded didn't really turn out well. I think I was looking at the list last night. The best other prospect he traded was probably Manny Margot. In the in the Craig Kimbrel trade, and I don't think Boston's sweating losing Manny Margot when again they already had Jackie Bradley Jr., who's basically the same player, Mike, uh, but with a, a stronger side of the platoon. And I just don't understand why we are now like. Kyle Bloom has, has done a very good job. He added Hunter Renfro. He added Kyle Schwarber. He added a lot of very smart, low cost deals. But it's not like Boston wasn't in a good position before because they just won the World Series three years ago, and they had. If ownership was willing to pay for Mookie Betts, they would have been set up for a very long time with that core still remaining. So yes, this is a rant. And I know that Boston fans are focused on tonight and tomorrow and their chance to win the World Series this year. But I think we're doing a disservice to to Dabrowski and to the team that boston put together they didn't just win the world series in 2018 they also won the division in 2016 and 2017 the first time in franchise history that they won three division titles in a row and that's in a division with the yankees and the the blue jays who were still good at that time and the rays i don't know what about that isn't a sustainable winner because they sustained that stretch for three consecutive years then they had one losing season and dobrowski got fired it does a disservice to that tenure to say oh well it wasn't set up well for the future they needed someone from the rays to come in and really position them well
2: that was great uh it wasn't even a losing season by the way it they went 84 and 78
0: okay yeah it wasn't even a losing season they just didn't make the playoffs and not everyone can be the dodgers it's also very funny that a lot of these pieces and i like the reporters who have written them they're just you know quoting the sources that they speak to but a lot of these sources are like oh the 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 Red Sox want to set up to be like the Dodgers. You know what setting up to be like the Dodgers is? It's trading for Mookie Betts, who the Red Sox had, and then traded to the Dodgers. Just signing Betts to an extension would be the Dodgers' way because we saw when the Dodgers had Betts, they did sign Betts to an extension. It is driving me up a wall to see this happen because... Everyone wants to be like the Dodgers and win the division every year, but they don't want to actually spend the money to go out and do it. The Dodgers combine prospective de- development with the ability to spend money. They say, oh, well, we want bets so badly, we'll also take on David Price's contract. And the other teams that want to be like the Dodgers don't actually want to take that important step.
2: Cram, 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 Cram. cram. I'll join in with that. Cram.
3: That's a, that's, that was an amazing rant, Cram. I think that you you alluded to it at the end, but it really is Ray's front office creep. Like Ray Ray's brain front off front office creep into the media where it's not it's actually not about the success that you're describing, three straight divisions and winning the World Series. It's about doing it in the most efficient way possible, but efficiency is only judged by
0: money in that equation because it's the only publicly gonna, available
3: data well, that we have.
2: It's it's not Ray's front office creep, because who's running the fucking Dodgers?
0: And same in Houston. Houston's General manager, also from the Rays, and Houston probably is not going to re-sign Carlos Correa after they didn't re-sign Garrett Cole. Justin Verlander will probably leave too. And yeah, the Astros are have a lot of really, really good players, but if they were going to be like the Dodgers, they would re-sign some of them as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's and it's also like the causal error is a little bit backwards there because not like it's not Rays creep into the media. James Clucking, Heim Bloom. Both wrote for Baseball Prospectus. Like this is going the other way. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a, a efficiency as you're in the most predictable segue possible. If efficiency is a pretext for making everything slightly worse uh, for capitalistic ends, so
0: Dombrowski also like High and Bloom has done a very good job with with low cost, yeah, pickups th- this winter, but also. You know, Dombrowski traded for Iavaldi for I think he traded Jalen Beaks for him and he he got Steve Pierce for cheap, and then Steve Pierce was the World Series MVP. So it's not like the only players Dombrowski added were Sale and Price and Kimbrell. He also did the the alternate methods of adding players too. It's just he he did so by signing David Price to a seven-year deal so that doesn't seem as smart as I don't know, it's, it's the Craig Goldstein tweet, right? That yeah. Billy Bean does 487 things to make the team slightly cheaper but slightly worse. And then the nationals sign Mike max scherzer and everyone thinks, hmm, I don't see it. That's exactly what we're getting with here, just on the level of a franchise over time as opposed to do different organizations.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the the Craig's tweet almost I looked this up a couple of weeks ago. The Red Sox payroll is about 15% lower than it was in 2018. And you know what their win total was this year? About 15% lower than it was in 2018. So (laughs) it's not actually more efficient or sustainable. With that said, like I don't mean to shit on the Red Sox before they're actually eliminated because I I like a lot of the individual moves that Heinblum's been doing. I think he deserves a lot of credit, or he and his front office deserve a lot of credit for um, identifying guys like Kike Hernandez and Kyle Schwarber and putting them in a position to get the best out of themselves. And- And so, you know, this is a good team, but they had an absolute killer a couple years ago. And every, you know, every time that they're short a reliever or that, uh, you know, they don't, somebody in the outfield makes a, you know, misplays a ball. uh, It's in the back of my mind that this team was a lot better not too long ago. It didn't used to have these weaknesses.
0: Yeah. And this is not to decry Bloom. I also think his most controversial move is trading bets right away. And that probably was an ownership decision because ownership was saying we won't go more than $290 million for bets when he was worth a lot more than that. So this is less about Bloom and more about what came before him and not forgetting that the Red Sox for one final time enjoyed one of the best seasons in MLB history not that long ago. It just boggles
1: the mind.
3: Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash! Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies' splendor, for each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's, huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the hotels.com app.
2: Okay, anything else to say about the the ALCS? We got a little bit far afield uh here.
0: It's been a good series. I think both of these series, they haven't had any late extra innings classics yet, but there have been a lot of one run or tied games in the ninth inning. And I think both series have been solid A minuses in my mind.
2: Um, So this this applies to both. I want to ask how many times in the past week have you been certain about which way a series was going to go? And then within like within three (laughs) hours, been proving completely wrong.
0: I mean, it's happened in each of the last three games in the NLCS, if that's where we're going.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, this has been a surprisingly topsy-turvy... Um, oh, it's felt surprisingly topsy-turvy for a series that the Braves have led so far from uh, from wire to wire. Uh, I I don't know. I've been interested in the way the Dodgers have been talking about. There have been some comments, Mookie Betts, uh, Walker Bueller to a certain extent. I've been really equanimous about the the way that they've lost and i've thought that like this is just a very well-adjusted uh approach to to defeat um and but at the same time it's not what you see a lot from from baseball teams that are about to get knocked out of the playoffs and i thought that maybe that meant that they were sort of mentally checking out uh and that has turned out very much not to be the case after they exploded for 11 runs in in game five so um i don't know like I think the Braves still have to be favorites with the lead and going home with two really good starting pitchers coming up. Uh, and, you know, as scary as the Dodgers are, I think the Braves have pretty clearly outplayed them in this series on on a an aggregate level.
0: Yeah, I'm done doubting Anderson and Morton after they beat the Brewers starters and then the Dodgers well, starters early in the series. Well, first
2: of all, first of all, you're not done doubting Anderson. You set a, sent a really... I'm going to say it was snarky slack message about pitching (laughs) prospects vis-a-vis our our 25 under 25 list, where I was way higher on Ian Anderson than the the rest of us. So if you're done lying, please continue.
0: I will clarify, I am done doubting Anderson in the context of this postseason. I am not done doubting Anderson when compared against the likes of Bo Bichette and Kyle Tucker long-term. But that said... Anderson and Morton are both very good postseason pitchers. I thought Morton's recovery in game three was really impressive after that first inning. And then he ended up, I mean, they lost the game, but he pitched better than Walker Bueller. And I think that you have to favor Scherzer and Bueller, but it's not by a huge amount. Like, I would favor the Red Sox starters by a huge amount at this point. I think it's funny that you say Atlanta has outplayed the Dodgers this series because I've gotten that impression, too. And a lot of the stat I'm about to say was influenced by the Dodgers explosion in game five. Right now, the Dodgers have an 8-11 OPS in this series. Atlanta's all the way down at 706. That's a really wide gulf. And I think what Atlanta has done well is a lot of the little things. They haven't made the defensive mistakes that the Dodgers have. The Dodgers are up to 11 stolen bases now, which is really impressive, but... Atlanta is taking the extra bases with Washington's crazy sends around third base. There have even been a couple times in the series where Atlanta tagged up from first to second or from second to third on a normal fly ball and seemed to catch the Dodgers outfielders flat footed. They weren't expecting it and they rushed the throw and it was late. So I think Atlanta has been smart in how it's trying to gain small advantages. I also think rosario and freeman are the only guys on this lineup hitting if you look at their starters they've had i think the same starters basically every game and rosario has a 1609 ops freeman has a 1014 ops even better since he stopped striking out every at bat no other player in this lineup has an above average ops in this series now in third place is jock peterson at 721 nobody else is even above Seven hundred. So I think they need someone else to step up. Whether it's Austin Riley who hasn't hit, Ozzy Albies, who hasn't hit in either series so far, Adam Duvall or Jorge Soler who's now back from from the COVID list. I think they probably need someone else to hit. But they, you know, the Dodgers pitching has been really good for all the criticism Dave Roberts has gotten for his management. The Dodgers pitching has only been allowing three runs a game this entire postseason against some very good offenses. So I think we have to give both pitching staffs in this series a lot of credit
2: up until that nine uh, nine run game by the Braves in game four. I think it was since the third to last game um, of the season against Milwaukee or of the regular season that the Dodgers had allowed more than five runs like the pitching has not been the problem. I'm looking here, you're saying more people need to hit. Ozzie Albies doesn't have an extra base hit this series. Like I'm making faces it baseball reference. Cause it feels like he's been producing more. Well, than that's, he has, be- that's because
0: he just is scoring from first on doubles. So it's, he's so <laughs> fast. It seems like he started on second base. Also, uh, can we talk just for a moment about speed? Did you catch the Eddie Rosario, Ahmed Rosario mix up last night? That was really amusing. I had it on. I had it on mute.
2: I saw some of the discourse, like, I don't know, like Eddie Rosario runs pretty well. Like he's a pretty fast for a quarter outfielder.
0: Yeah, but at one point they said, I think they were listing the number of runs this season where a batter or, or where a base runner reached at least 30 feet per second. And they said, Trey Turner's number one and Eddie Rosario's number two. And yeah. I thought, okay, that can't be right. That and then it turned right. out they were talking about a different Rosario. Anyway, Eddie Rosario has hit so well that it doesn't matter that he's not the fastest player in baseball because he's slugging a thousand this series. So yeah. The-
2: Something I, I uh, noticed, he had 12 total bases on, uh, um, what day of the week was it? Zach, I haven't known what day of the week it is since before the pandemic. Um, it's a miracle I show up here every Friday morning to, <laughs> to actually record this podcast.
3: On, on Wednesday, when he almost hit for the cycle?
2: Yes, when he almost hit for the cycle, he had 12 total bases. It's the first, t- first Braves player in postseason history to record 12 total bases in a game. And like, there've been a, a
0: lot of good Atlanta hitters in postseason. They've history. had a few,
2: like how, how many thousands of playoff games did Chipper Jones or Fred McGriff or your Hank Aaron play in. So
0: big, yeah, game. a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the Atlanta pickups at the deadline have performed really well this postseason from Peterson to Rosario to Adam Duvall, who hasn't hit that well this series, but has been a solid performer throughout. So that goes to show what a job that front office did in remaking the outfield with Acuna out. Even though they were trailing the Mets in July, they decided to go for it and to to remake that outfield and it's paid off. I think the uh, on the other side, the Dodgers just hadn't hit in runner with runners in scoring position at all in the first two games. Then Cody Bellinger had the big knock in game three and you talked about it in the moment, Mike. You said it felt like that series completely shifted and I give Atlanta a lot of credit for coming back in game four because you could have seen a, a narrative, a scenario, in which the Dodgers just took game four behind Arias going up against an Atlanta bullpen game that lost its first starter before first pitch, uh, then won game five, and then won game six. Like That was a conceivable scenario given how momentous that home run felt. It reminded me, we were talking offline about other home runs that felt like they shifted the momentum that much in the middle of the series. It reminded me of David Ortiz's Grand Slam uh, with the famous picture of Torrey Hunter falling into the bullpen against Detroit because up to that point in that Detroit-Boston series, I think Detroit had allowed just one run in 17 innings. They were about to take a 2-0 lead in Boston, and that just completely shifted it. But (laughs) then the Red Sox ended up winning that series, and Atlanta at least took game four here to prevent that momentum from taking hold.
2: Yeah, it's... uh after that home run, particularly like Bellinger, where he hit it, like in terms of, of where in the strike zone it was, the the fact that it got all the way back almost out of nowhere from a three-run deficit that had looked pretty safe to that point. It would not have shocked me if Atlanta didn't win another game. Uh, so like you said, full credit to them for bouncing back and, and really putting it to the Dodgers in game five. <sighs> yeah, it's. We've had a little bit of everything uh in this series, like you said. I think it would have been you know, maybe we're gonna once we're we're returning to to unincorporated Cobb County for the the final leg of this series, we're gonna get a couple more close games that are uh decided late. Um, but yeah, it's uh I don't know. This been current, pretty good so far. The
0: the current the margin feels right. They've both in games four and five won one game pretty comfortably, and then the three close games that were decided in the final at-bat, Atlanta took two and the Dodgers took one. So that's why Atlanta's up in the series. Sometimes it comes down that way, just whoever wins the eighth and ninth innings in the close game, and Atlanta did its job in the first two games at home. So I'm interested to see both how Scherzer pitches when he presumably has a more lively arm because they didn't use him in relief like they had in game five of the, the NLDS, but I also at this point when you're the Dodgers and you've already survived what is it, four elimination games this postseason, at some point the luck is probably gonna run out because it's just you're not gonna keep flipping the coin and landing up heads every single game.
2: Yeah, you mentioned Scherzer's importance or Scherzer's performance being so important. Like the Dodgers pitchers have uh or Dodgers starters, I should say, have recorded four outs after uh after the fourth inning and they've recorded zero recorded zero outs after after the fifth in the series through five games. And this is a a team that like even with Trevor Bauer suspended, even with with Clayton Kershaw on the injured list, even with Dustin May uh out for Tommy John, like this is a team where rotation depth was supposed to be a big strength and they just haven't gotten anything out of the rotation. And the fact that they're close, uh I don't know, call it luck, call it Cleverness, call you know, call it whatever you want, but um it's uh that's one of those things that I don't expect to continue that long. And they're gonna need a lot from Scherzer and Bueller in, in game six and seven.
0: Certainly opposes the strengths and weaknesses we expected entering the season because yeah. the back end of the Dodgers bullpen has been great. Obviously, Trinan lost that game one, but Jansen's been perfect, Trinan's been mostly good. Uh, Star Gratterall pitched really well yesterday. Corey Kniebel has pitched well. Like the Dodgers relievers, if Kniebel's a reliever at this point, the Dodgers relievers have been doing the job that the starters did not. And that's just completely counter to what we would have expected entering the season.
2: Justin Brules pitched uh, uh, really well. Gratterall was inconsistent, looked uh, looked very hittable uh, up until recently and just really turned on. He was incredible uh, last night. And if... He's a guy, you know. He's a guy who can sometimes go multiple innings, like he did yesterday. Like that's, a, I mean, that's a weapon. If, uh,
0: if it, he's figuring it it out. didn't end up mattering, but I thought Gratterall was subject of the strangest managerial decision all yeah. postseason. Just so Gratterall had, yeah, he had pitched two innings, but only thrown what like thirteen pitches or something. So he was probably good to throw a third, and then they let him hit with a 6-2 to lead, and Cody Bellinger in scoring position, which okay, you think now they're going to bring him out for a third inning, except then they replaced him with Blake Trinan in the top of the sixth, so I don't understand why Gratterall was going to hit if they were going to remove him immediately. They had other pinch hitters left on the bench. Matt Beatty, I think Gavin Lux was also still on the bench, so that was really strange. It didn't end up mattering because yesterday the Dodgers used a lot of pitchers, and Joe Kelly in the first inning was the only one who allowed any runs, but if that had ended up backfiring. We, I, I think that would be even more than using Arias in relief. Yeah. The, the strangest decision Roberts made all postseason
2: and grad was was in the dugout sitting by himself with a jacket over his shoulder. Like it, he seemed to be under the impression that he was going back out there when, uh, uh, when, when he came out to hit. So yeah, just weird. I'm not really sure what the reasoning was behind that. Um, I don't know. So we've, we've been, uh, there's no, Sensitive way to put this total dog shit at <laughs> predictions so far this postseason. So, I hey,
0: we both said, or at least I said, Astros and six. I can't remember what you said. And if they win tonight, that'll look that'll end up being right, even though the route it took to get there with was rather circuitous.
2: Well, God bless the broken road, as they say. Um, I don't know. So, let's look ahead a little bit and, and try to game out, uh, how these two teams or how these two sets of teams match up. Cause the Astros, I think the Astros Red Sox, I think that one's more, I don't know. I was going to say more up in the air. I really have no idea. Cause the Astros have home field advantage uh, and the Red Sox have the better starting pitchers. Although you could say the same dynamic is a play in, uh, in LA Atlanta. So I don't know. Do you have a, a sense? Do you just want to, I mean, my inclination is just go with the teams with the lead. Like because the gaps between both of these teams is not so great that the starting pitcher is uh, even makes that big a difference or that one is like I would pick one to win two games before the other to win one.
0: Yeah, that's what the odds certainly say. I would put it this way. The Astros are a better team, but Atlanta has better pitching matchups, even with the Dodgers starters. I just would prefer Anderson and Morton over Garcia and Arquiti. So it depends what weight you give starting pitchers versus overall team construction. At this point, I, I'd probably lean a little more toward overall team construction just because we've seen teams win games without very good starting pitcher performances, but it's not that far apart in, in the fan odds. They're only four or five uh, percentage points separating odds. the two teams, which is a, a fine baseline to show that the, the Dodgers have a better chance to come back, but it's not by a prohibitive amount.
2: Yeah, it's, I think the starting pitching gap isn't as big in the in the Dodgers braves series, but I also think starting pitching is going to matter more in that series, just because that series has tended to be has, has tended to be closer and lower scoring, even with the the blowouts in the last couple of games, because a lot of that scoring really came at garbage time.
0: Hmm. So I don't know. I, I'll predict Atlanta versus Houston, but I don't feel confident about it. If we get the Mookie battle, I wouldn't be shocked that would probably lead to some fun baseball over the next couple of nights seeing two comebacks.
2: Yeah, I I think what I want is either Red Sox Braves or Dodgers Astros. So, like, those are the two matchups that I would find most interest, most interesting. I think they would be most even, like, regardless of, of who wins. So I, you know, the, the potential for a rematch of, of 2017, uh, after the, the sign-stealing stuff, after we've been, you know, sort of dealing with catharsis of, of that and the Red Sox sort of continuing to skate on on their role in, uh, in that whole scandal. Um, I, don't know, I would love that. I think that's... If we
0: get a 2017 rematch, I think the Astros should go full heel in that series. Like, invite Carlos Beltran to throw out the first pitch of their first home game. Just lean into it as much as possible. I know they won't, but I think that would elevate the drama even beyond the heightened level at which it would already appear.
2: If, and I'll tell you what else. If we get a 2017 rematch, we have to find some disgusting like, meat and donut creation for you to eat during this <laughs> series, because I'm still mad that you made me eat whatever that was. The
0: That wasn't me. That was an editor at TheRinger.com. The 2017 World Series obviously is tainted by the science scandal at this point, but Had some of the most fun World Series games in recent memory from the game two that we attended in LA to game five, which was even if 2019 had more of a juiced ball narrative than 2017 did. I think 2017 game five, the 13 to 12 game in Houston is going to be the peak of the juice ball era for me. Just some of the home runs hit in that game from Correa's mood shot to Puig in the ninth inning had like a one-handed home run swing. That game was so extraordinary that it would be fun to relive it. Also, wasn't that the series that had the the sticky ball controversy? A lot of ball weirdness between the, yeah. the Dodgers and the Astros.
2: Uh, everything was a little sticky in that series because of the... Well, food-related reasons because of the the chicken and waffles thing in Dodger Stadium, but also You're still thinking about that there was there was well, I was in the ox box in center field at, at Minute Maid right in front of the Torchies, and Torchies started bringing down free tacos to the writers. So that was, you know, you talk about professional highlights. Free Torchies is is up. <laughs> um, oh, you mentioned heel, uh, and I wanna I want to single out Carlos Correa since this could be his last series with the uh with the Astros and like he's making the most of it. I I think like between the the watch celebration which like I try like there's something a little basic about like bat flips and home run celebrations. I think some of the discourse around that is a little hysterical like a little NBA Twitter, but that was so fucking cool. Uh and like getting um getting Erod out to to give it back to him a couple games later um I don't know. If this is the end of Carlos Gray in Houston, he's he's getting his money's worth. He's going out on a high.
0: I wish Cora hadn't gotten mad at Erod for that celebration. I don't know. At the same time, uh, as we're giving plaudits to people who might be enjoying their final series somewhere, this could be Albert Pujols the uh, end of his true. career. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm glad they were just singles last night, but I'm glad he got a final playoff moment. He now has more playoff hits as a dodger than as an angel which is really kind of sad and just a data point alongside all the sad mike trout facts uh but i also appreciate that chris taylor decided to homer pooholson both times instead of making him run around the bases because i'm I'm not sure what he's capable of
2: i'm upset about that (laughs) like pools is so slow Not, not in addition to being in addition to being older and bigger like his body being ravaged by plantar fa- fasciitis and stuff. Like, I would have been interesting to to see how far he could go if that had dropped in the gap. But that's that's a great point because it would have been a drag if if our last memory of him was like him with a two forty OBP on an angels team that's going nowhere. Like if this is the end for Albert Pujols, particularly the performance he had in game five, I think it's a, a fitting send off and, and it's good that, that everybody's getting a chance to, to get one last look at him.
0: And we'll certainly get at least one more pinch hit appearance in this series, because even if he's not going to start anymore with Morton and Anderson on the mound, with all of Atlanta's late inning left ear levers, he'll probably get a pitch hitting appearance at some point, whether it's for a pitcher or like Gavin Lux or someone like that.
2: I would imagine. All right. So so I think we're we're set up for a pretty interesting weekend of baseball. And we'll be back uh next week. We'll also have a wrap up and world series preview uh on the Ringer baseball feed exclusively on Spotify with baseball barbecue. So be sure to to check your feed for that early next week uh but until then that'll do it for this week's episode of the ringer mlb show thanks as always to zach for joining me thanks to bobby wagner for producing today's episode thanks to alex cora albert pujols and Torchy's tacos for giving us stuff to talk about and thank you for listening enjoy the week's action and we'll see you next time